Yes, VBS truly is a fun, encouraging week here at Freedoms. I always enjoy the energy that's in the building. I don't necessarily get a lot done, especially in the mornings, um, but it's a lot of fun. It's encouraging to see all the children who are here. I mean, 88 children this week, many of whom don't attend Freedoms or don't attend any church, and that's very, very encouraging to be a part of. I'm very thankful for all the men and the women who gave of their time in joyous service uh, from the church here just to make this possible. Uh, I know that there are a number who even took vacation time this week in order to serve at VBS. It's just a very encouraging time, and I'd like to say thank you to everyone who helped out with this. And also, I'd like to encourage us all to continue to pray that God will bear lasting fruit through what took place at VBS this year. Today, we're talking about the topic of gentleness. And when we, if you're like me, when you think of the topic of gentleness, it's not one of those topics that really makes you all that excited. If you were to look up gentleness in a dictionary, you would see definitions like meek, mild, quiet, calm, uh, things like that. And you know what? It's obvious that the quality of gentleness is good if you're working with children or that you're working with people who are hurting or who are sick in some way. But when we think about living gentle lives day in, day out, uh, throughout everything that we go through in work and neighborhoods and family and relationships— Sometimes it can feel like if we are striving to be gentle in every single thing that we do, that we're just going to get run over, that people might ignore us, that people might take advantage of us. And so we question, is gentleness really that practical in day-to-day life? If I were to think about someone who personifies or exemplifies gentleness, Mr. Rogers comes to mind. You may be familiar with Mr. Rogers. Maybe like me, you grew up with Mr. Rogers. You don't have to be exactly my age to grow up with him because he was on the air for... I don't know what, 35, 40 years. But Mr. Rogers, I think, exemplifies gentleness and kindness. I can't recall a time of ever seeing Mr. Rogers raise his voice or get frustrated about anything. He was always calm. He was always soft-spoken. He was always gentle. Now, I learned a lot from Mr. Rogers, and there's always a sense of calm that comes over me. Even looking at this picture, I feel this wave of calm that comes over me, thinking about Mr. Rogers taking off his cardigan sweater and changing his shoes, and then feeding the fish. And you know what? Mr. Rogers is great. But at the same time, we think, okay, what would it be like to really live like Mr. Rogers all the time, day in, day out? I think for some of us, at the least, it would seem a bit idealistic or impractical. For others of us, it would just seem downright boring. I think especially for men, it would kind of feel unmasculine, perhaps, to live like Mr. Rogers with that level of kindness and calmness and soft speech 24 hours a day, seven days a week throughout our entire lives. Yet when we look at Scripture, we see over and over and over and over God calling us to be people who exemplify gentleness in everything that we do. And so today we're going to dig into Scripture to see what God means when he calls us to be men and women who are gentle. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. We're in a series right now called Fruit of the Spirit, in which we are looking at nine character qualities out of Galatians chapter 5. And and the Apostle Paul says that if the Holy Spirit is in the driver's seat of your life, your life will manifest these nine qualities. The nine fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And today we're looking at the topic of gentleness. So I'm going to pray for us, then we're going to dive in to Matthew chapters 11 and 12. 
Our Father, we thank you that you are gentle with us. We thank you that you uh, are willing to, to give us grace, to give us mercy, to give us patience, Lord, because we all have fallen far short of your perfection. Lord, I pray that now in this time together that you will show us how we can allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through us to manifest this fruit of, of gentleness in all of our relationships with those around us. And Lord, as we were talking and, and singing and clapping about VBS earlier today, I pray that you will be at work in the lives of every single child who is here this past week, that you will be at work in their lives to draw them close to you, that they will grow up to be men and women who don't just know about you, who aren't just uh, fans who admire you, but who are fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray especially for those who don't currently attend a, a Bible-believing, gospel-centered church. We pray that you will awaken them, awaken their families, Lord, to the reality of who Jesus is. And I pray that in our time together that you will awaken our hearts and minds in a fresh way to Jesus as well. And, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. So we're starting in the latter part of, of Matthew chapter 11, and then through the course of our time together this morning, we'll go into chapter 12 as well. But I'm going to begin by reading Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. In these verses, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, this is a passage that, if you've been around church or read your Bible much at all, it's probably a passage that you know at least decently well. It's a very encouraging and comforting passage. But it's also a passage that can teach us a lot about gentleness. And in this passage, we see Jesus' gentleness displayed. He calls himself gentle and humble in heart. And these two words, gentle and humble, we have to understand that those two words really go hand in hand with each other. That if you are not humble, it's going to be really hard to display gentleness on a regular basis. I mean, the opposite of humility is pride or arrogance. And if you are pride or, uh, prideful or arrogant, your primary focus is on yourself. And if your focus is on yourself, you're not really that interested in what is going on in other people's lives. And if, if you're pride, prideful and arrogant, and if something goes against what your expectations are, odds are good you're going to have a relatively short fuse in how you respond to that situation or that person. But if you are humble, it's going to be much easier to focus on others and to think, okay, what are their needs? What, what can I do to care for them and to build them up? And that helps create in us a spirit of gentleness. So Jesus describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So we see here that Jesus' gentleness leads to rest. Jesus talks here about taking his yoke upon us. And, and here in today's culture, we aren't, I mean, there are a few farmers here in our midst, there are people with a farm background, but you know what? We don't use this type of yoke that much anymore. But let me give you a literal picture of what a yoke is. A yoke is this wooden structure that is used to put, to, to really tie two animals together, especially oxen, and it would allow them to pull a plow or to pull a wagon and to really magnify their efforts as they pulled together with the yoke between them. And Jesus is saying here that we need to yoke ourselves up with him. I mean, literally, you see that contraption there. The necks of the animals go through those loops. So Jesus is saying, you put yourself in one side of this yoke, and I will put myself in the other. My yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls as you do this. And he says, you can do this because I am gentle and humble in heart. Now, there's something really powerful about being around people who are gentle. Now, there were groups of people back in Jesus' day, just as there are in our day, who are anything but gentle. When Jesus is talking about those who are weary and burdened, one primary group of people he's probably talking about here are those who are trying to follow God, but who are oppressed by the religious leaders of the day. I mean, if you read much at all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about Jesus' life, you see that he had a lot of confrontations with the Jewish religious leaders of the day because the Jewish religious leaders thought that in order to follow God, you need to add rule upon rule, and it became legalism, trying to earn God's favor. Over in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is addressing them very directly, and he says they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And so Jesus is saying, you know what, these religious leaders, they're, they're weighing people down with these religious rules and expectations that God doesn't lay on the people. So Jesus is coming along and saying, look, I am here. I'm God here in human form. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me if you are weary and burdened, whether it's religiously, whether it's because of worries and anxieties, whether it's because of baggage from the past. Come to me. Yoke yourself together with me, for my yoke is easy my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, it is amazing how when you are in the presence of someone who is humble and gentle, it gives you a sense of rest and peace and calm. Back during my freshman year of college, I made uh, a mistake, an unfortunate mistake that led me to a lot of anguish and a lot of shame. You see, I wasn't a Christian at that point, and I was raised in a home that had strong morals. I was raised in a home that, that there was a lot of respect and, and uh, value and, and love in, but at the same time, I wasn't really interested in following God. And so then, and still now I make some, sometimes make mistakes that aren't the greatest, but I had some friends that year who we decided, let's go camping together. It was my freshman year of college, and I was going home uh, soon before we were planning to go camping, so I said, I'll grab a bunch of camping supplies, so I did. Now, a bunch of my friends drank alcohol. I mean, we were under 21, but they, they drank. You know, it's not uncommon for people under 21 to drink. Um, not right, but not uncommon. Um, and, but I was raised not to drink alcohol. It's never really appealed to me. But I went along, and, and because I had all these camping supplies, my friend's alcohol was all stored in the coolers that I owned. So we were out there at the campground one night. It was probably around 9.30 or so. Police officers are kind of coming around, and they ask if they could look in their coolers. And they did. Next thing I know, I'm sitting in a police car for about half an hour, um, getting a talking to about alcohol. And you know what? It wasn't my alcohol, but it was in my coolers. So I was implicated. I got a ticket for minor in possession of alcohol. And now, keep in mind, I'd never had any trouble with the law before in my life. I'd never even had a speeding ticket. And here I am, getting charged with minor in possession of alcohol. A number of my friends did as well, who actually owned the alcohol. Now, that definitely put a damper on our camping trip. We went right back to the dorms, spent the night there. And I barely slept at all that night. I just felt the shame and sadness over what had taken place. And when I woke up in the morning, I knew I needed to call my parents to let them know about this. But I was kind of scared. I sat there with the phone for probably 15 or 20 minutes before I called, just trying to think of, okay, how do I say this in a way that, that isn't that bad? And, and I was just very concerned about how are they going to respond. So I picked up the phone, 
finally called them. They could tell right away something isn't quite right. So I just, I, I shared it with them. And like I said, I wasn't really sure how they were going to respond. But they responded with such gentleness and such grace. Sure, they, they certainly acknowledged that it was not a good decision to do that type of thing. But at the same time, they weren't like, Brandon, what in the world were you thinking? We, we raised you better than that. You're a dis- disappointment to us. They didn't say that stuff. They affirmed, you know what? We love you. Nothing can ever change that love that we have for you. Um, we still believe in you. I mean, it was amazing how over the course of this conversation, as they're giving me gentleness and giving me grace, it was like that shame and the anguish that was a weight on my shoulders. It was just melting away. I was able to feel comfortable in their presence, even though, you know what? I'd made a mistake. It wasn't good. And they recognized that. I recognized it. But still, they gave me grace and gentleness, and that made all the difference in the world. And that's what happens when you're in the presence of, of grace and gentleness and kindness. That it gives you a level of comfort, a level of ease, a level of rest in being who you are, warts and all, rough edges and all, without trying to cover it up and make yourself look better because you're afraid of how they're going to react. You're afraid of some abrasive or harsh reaction that they may have. And that's the way Jesus is. He says, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I mean, this really aligns well with the rest of Scripture, where we see, you know what? We can come to Jesus without cleaning up our act beforehand. He welcomes us to himself. He says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened. He's gentle and humble in heart. Now, there's something here as we look at this passage and expand beyond it that I want to point out about gentleness. It's that gentleness is strength under control. It's not weakness. I mean, anyone can blow their top. Anyone can, can lose their temper and yell at someone else. But it takes strength to really control your emotions, control um, the frustrations that sometimes come up, and to channel your strength and your power in a healthy way. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. If you back up to the verse before the passage that we read, chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus said, All things have been committed to me by the Father. This is a very similar type of sentiment as what he said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, when he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's in control of everything. So when he extends gentleness and grace to people, it's not a sign of his weakness. It's instead a sign of him channeling that strength to not be forceful and overwhelming, but to be redemptive and to build people up in a healthy way. As we've been saying here, strength, gentleness is strength under control. We see this displayed all the time. I think of Isaiah chapter 40. There's a very interesting passage there. I'm going to read two verses of it. Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11. It's saying, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. Now fast forward to the next verse. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So we see side by side here two verses where one is talking about God's power. He he rules with a mighty arm. But on the other hand, we see his gentleness. I mean, there's, there's not much that displays gentleness as much as a shepherd gently holding a little sheep in his arms. But that's a picture of God. He, he balances power with gentleness. And that's the picture of strength under control that Jesus is displaying here. 
I mean, think about strength under control. Let me give you a couple of uh, literal pictures of this. Think about a horse. Horses have a lot of strength. I mean, you look at them, and their bodies are just rippling with muscle and power. But if you've ever ridden a horse, or especially if you've ever let a child ride a horse, you know that horses can channel that power, control that power in a way that is very gentle, in a way where you don't worry about your child riding a horse who has been shown to be gentle because you trust them. They have a lot of power, but it's power under control. Or think, for instance, of a a car engine. Did you know that every single minute that an engine is running, there are thousands of explosions taking place inside of that engine? If you ever experienced a gasoline explosion, you know that it can be very destructive or even fatal. I mean, maybe you've experienced it in person or you've seen YouTube videos of gasoline explosions. They can be very, very dangerous. But I bet that when you go out into the parking lot today and turn the engine to start your car, you're not fearful of whether or not those gasoline explosions are going to hurt you. Why? Because you know that the explosions, the power there is controlled within that engine. Now, if you start to see gas drip out of your gas tank onto the ground, that's another story. Because then this incredible power is no longer controlled. It's it's very dangerous. Then you need to take some significant actions to make sure um, a somewhat dangerous situation doesn't become destructive. But but a horse or an engine are are pictures of of significant power that is under control. Jesus is the same way. And for us, it's the same way. When we are demonstrating gentleness to others, it's channeling power and strength in a way that is redemptive that is under control rather than being forcible or out of control. As you look at Jesus' life, he never lost control of his emotions or his temper. Now, it's interesting to go on through this passage. Uh, Oftentimes, we look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, kind of in isolation, just as this nice little uh, proof text that is encouraging to us when we're weary or burdened. But we need to understand it's part of a larger context. Look with me to, to um, chapter 12. Uh, if your Bible is like mine, it says, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. See, Jesus had a lot of confrontations with the Jewish leaders of that day. And one of the things that took place here in this passage is an argument or a strong discussion about what is lawful on the Sabbath day. You see, the Jewish leaders had made all these different rules about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. And Jesus came along and said, you know what? Those are just man-made rules. They aren't God's rules that you guys are are saying that people need to follow. So he had no problem breaking them. And that led to some confrontations. So there's a big discussion going on here where the Jewish leaders are trying to put Jesus in the corner and make him look bad in front of a lot of people in the synagogue. And Jesus instead turns the tables on them, and they're the ones who end up looking foolish. And so Jesus, um, I mean, he's really gotten the best of them. And they are really angry with him. Look with me to chapter 12, verse 14. It says, But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. And this is a theme that reverberates throughout the Gospels, is that that, that the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders are, are trying to find ways to kill Jesus. Now, we spoke earlier of Mr. Rogers. Let me give you a quote from Philip Yancey, a Christian author. He said, How would telling people to be nice to one another get a man crucified? What government would execute Mr. Rogers or Captain Kangaroo. I mean, no. If Jesus was simply telling people to be nice, to be gentle, to be kind, to be soft-spoken, that wouldn't have gotten him executed. His message was much more than that. 
But at the same time, he's still constantly displaying gentleness and kindness to those around him. It's interesting to see how he responds here. I mean, if he had an anger problem, he could have easily just called down fire upon these Pharisees. He could have killed them on the spot. But he didn't. Instead, he took a more peaceful route at this point. Um, and, and listen to what, he, what happened next. Picking up in verse 15, Jesus, he's aware, he says aware of this, aware that they're plotting to kill him. Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit in him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Now, there is a lot in this passage, but I want to, again, point out in verse 15 that rather than getting into a, a shouting match with the Pharisees, fighting fire with fire, Jesus chose at this point to withdraw from the situation. And, and I specifically want to point out two verses, verses 19 and 20, um, that really provide a lot of the mentality that Jesus had here. This is a passage out of Isaiah chapter 42. It was written... Um, some 700 years before the time of Christ, but it's talking about when Jesus comes and, and the type of demeanor that he will have as he interacts with others. It says, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. This is talking about as Jesus relates to others, he's not going to um, be really brash or loud. I mean, there are times he raises his voice in his ministry, but it's still under control. But that does, being brash and loud doesn't characterize his life and his ministry. Instead, he's more calm, he's more gentle. And it says in verse 20, A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now, we don't deal that much with reeds and wicks in our world, do we? But a reed was a plant that is kind of, it can be hollow, kind of a cylinder of sorts, long, and it could be used as a measuring stick, or it could also be used to support things. Like you put a bunch of reeds together and, and put a, plant, like a table on top of it or something like that. But as soon as a reed gets damaged, broken, bruised, it loses its strength. It's no longer beneficial for measuring things or for supporting things anymore. So typically then, a bruised reed is discarded or maybe even burned. Or he also talks to you about a smoldering wick. A wick in that, in that time was for a lamp. I mean, they didn't have electricity, so they had oil lamps. And a wick was a piece of linen that, that went down into the oil, and they would... Light the, light the oil that would be seeping up through that wick. But Jesus, this is talking about a smoldering wick, a wick that he really isn't putting off much light, but instead is just smoking a lot. It's creating a lot of pollution in the house. And typically, if, if you would have a smoldering wick back then, you would put it out and replace it with a new wick. But it's saying here about Jesus that, that he will not break a bruised reed. He will not snuff out a smoldering wick. And what this is, is it's essentially a metaphor for how Jesus is treating people. That when Jesus comes upon people who are damaged in some way, who are vulnerable, who society might cast off and say, you know what, there's no hope for them, they're struggling, they're not going to help us out, Jesus looks at them and sees hope. He wants to invest in them a redemption to help them to succeed where others are just going to cast them by the wayside. 
And that's the demeanor that Jesus had throughout his ministry and his life. And this shows a second key characteristic of gentleness. Not only is gentleness strength under control, but also gentleness offers restorative grace. Now, we don't use the word restorative that much, but basically it just means grace that restores, grace that rebuilds, grace that redeems and builds people up when they are struggling. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we see him displaying restorative grace time and time again. I think of John chapter 4. Jesus is out at this well, um, a well of water, and he meets this woman, a Samaritan woman. Samaritans and Jews did not get along at all. And this woman was living with a lot of shame. She had, been, she had had five husbands who divorced her. She was now living with a man who was not her husband. She was carrying a lot of shame. You see this by the fact that she's out there in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, when no other person would come to that well. She's out there because she's a social outcast. And here comes Jesus. I mean, rather than avoiding her, he goes and starts a conversation with her. He asks her for a drink of water. And she is quite rude to him. But rather than getting rude back or being angry, he is gentle. He continues the conversation. He's not gentle because he's scared of her, scared that, oh, she might go back into town and tell people, hey, Jesus came and talked with me. He's gentle because he sees that she is fragile, that she has some broken parts of her life, and he offers her living water, water that will nourish that thirst that she is trying to fulfill through men and through a variety of other means. And then God ends up working through the Samaritan woman Not only does she come to faith in God, but she leads many other people to come to know Christ as Messiah as well. The world would cast her off and say, you know what? She's worthless. She's broken. But Jesus sees someone who he can redeem. He offers restorative grace. Or I think of the the, the well-known beloved story in John chapter 8. Jesus is there uh, in the temple grounds, and, and the Jewish leaders come dragging in this woman who, who's going through a ton of shame because she's just been discovered to be in the act of adultery. And so the, the religious leaders pull her in there right before Jesus, and they make a big show of it, and they say, Jesus, we should stone her to death. What do you say? They want to catch Jesus in the trap. Now, Jesus, he offers significant mercy and grace. He, he comes next to this woman who stoops down to the ground and writes something there on the ground. We don't know what it is, but it's something that convicts the Jewish leaders, and one by one, they begin to leave. And he essentially is standing by this woman in her, in her complete and utter shame and says, I am with her. I'm with her. Yes, she is broken, but I'm going to redeem her. The others just wanted to cast her off. He offered restorative grace and gentleness. All the people had left, and it was just left with he and that woman standing there. And he turned to that woman and said, Woman, who condemns you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. I mean, he didn't downplay the sin. He still was holding her accountable for that. He said, Go now and leave that life of sin. But he offered such gentleness and such grace. Or I think as well of Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus. I mean, we have little children's songs about Zacchaeus being a wee little man who climbed a tree and stuff. Zacchaeus was despised. He was a tax collector. He was rich at the expense of other people whom he took advantage of. He took their money. But Zacchaeus heard Jesus was coming through town. He wanted to see Jesus. He climbed up in a tree because he couldn't get through the crowds to see Jesus. 
And when Jesus saw Zacchaeus up in that tree, he didn't point an accusing finger at Zacchaeus and say, Zacchaeus, you're a thief. You need to return everything that you stole. Instead, he looked at Zacchaeus and said, Zacchaeus, today I'm going to come to your house and have a meal with you. He offered grace and restorative gentleness. And in the end, Zacchaeus repented. He turned to Christ. He, on his own volition, repaid everyone who he'd stolen from. And he, he vowed to never do that again. God redeemed him. But it took restorative grace and gentleness to bring that out. That's the power of restorative grace. It's the power of gentleness that it can rebuild in a way that, that being harsh or angry cannot. That's why in Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, If anyone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should re- restore them gently. I mean, you need to restore them. You need to hold them accountable. You need to help call them on their sin. You need to put up boundaries in their life. You need to walk there along with them and, and not let them downplay the reality of sin in their life. But do it gently. Because if you are harsh to someone who is struggling, if you're harsh to someone who even is sinful and, and isn't recognizing it, Odds are good you're going to push them away. But gentleness offers the opportunity for restoration. I think of my parents and that phone call back in my freshman year of college. If I had called them and they came down on me really, really hard, I mean, yes, maybe I would have deserved it for making a, a, a dumb decision. But if they'd come down on me really, really hard and were really harsh, how would that have affected my relationship with them? Odds are good that in the future times, when I made bad decisions or when things weren't going well or when I failed a class later in college or something like that, that I would not have been nearly as open to bringing that to them openly and honestly. I would have started to be uncomfortable in their presence, especially when I recognized my weaknesses, and, and I would have started to cover those things up. And there wouldn't be as healthy of a relationship there. It's the same thing that if we lash out in anger or harshness towards others... It's going to affect our relationship with them. It's not going to build them up. It's going to slowly tear them down from the inside out. So that's why we are called to be men and women who generously offer gentleness to those around us. Now, you may be thinking, okay, in all these examples they shared of, of the woman at the well and of the woman caught in adultery and Zacchaeus and, and me, my freshman year of college, all these people recognized that they had a problem. Now, what about those people who have a problem, or they are a problem, but they don't recognize that they're arrogant, they're prideful, they're blind to their own sin? Doesn't that call for more forcefulness and maybe more harshness in how we address them? Well, I'd say yes and no. The situation does um, dictate how we address people. I mean, you look at Jesus, you look at the Apostle Paul, the situation that they were addressing did affect how directly they addressed it. And there are times that we do need to speak very strongly. There are times that sin, de- I mean, sin definitely needs to be called sin. We don't need to water down the truth. But at the same time, our default mode should be gentleness. There's not a place in Christianity for revenge or for tearing people down through gossip. Instead, our goal should always be rebuild people up. And, and to do that, we have to have a spirit of gentleness. That strength and that power that's welling up inside of us has to be controlled and tempered rather than being out of control and blowing up. Because when that happens, not much good is going to come out of it. I want to turn us to a couple of passages that talk about how we deal with those times 
when, you know what, people are oppositional, when people aren't um, recognizing their error. I turn us first to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. Paul writes to young Timothy, as Timothy's leading a church in Ephesus, he says, And the Lord's servant must not quarrel, or be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and, then, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. You see, Paul is teaching Timothy there are going to be people who oppose you in their, in their actions and their attitudes and their teaching. I mean, in the context here, there's a lot of false teaching going on in this church. Paul says, you know what? You have to address that. But do it instructively. Do it not out of resentment, but teach them with gentleness and trust that God will bring them to repentance. We are not the Holy Spirit in people's lives. God is. We are called to present the truth, not water it down, but also this is a call to not just say what we think and, and just let the pieces fall where they will. We are called to, to keep in mind how are people going to respond to this and, and to communicate in a way that's going to elicit the best response possible. And usually there needs to be a significant do- dose of gentleness mixed in with the truth that we are sharing. That's why we're told to communicate the truth in love. Unfortunately, Christians are oftentimes known for being harsh and judgmental and condemning. And sometimes I think that, that label is justifiable. There are a lot of Christians out there who think, you know what, we have the truth, and, and if people are in error, we just need to keep pounding at home and saying, you know what, this is truth. You need to submit to God. Repent now. And that is true that people do need to repent. But I will also say that if we are just pounding people over the head and our spirit is condemning and harsh and judgmental rather than gracious and gentle, our attitude is what's going to be turning people away from the truth. And the goal should be letting the gospel be, you know, if anyone's going to turn away from God, let them turn away from who God is in spirit and truth and turn away from the gospel rather than turning away because of our harsh attitudes. Over in Proverbs chapter 15, it says, that A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, if we are harsh in the way we are dealing with people, it's going to drive a wedge there in the relationship. But the gentle answer, a gentle word, turns away wrath. It helps build bonds that can help lead to restoration. And specifically in terms of evangelism, reaching out to non-Christians with the gospel, I turn us to 1 Peter three fifteen and 16. Peter says, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. So this is the context of, of Christian, non-Christians viewing the lives of Christians and saying, I see something different about you. What is different? And he's saying, okay, when you respond to them, respond with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So you're saying, you know what? People may still slander you, and if you are harsh and judgmental in the way that you interact with them, they're probably going to slander you for good reason. You deserve that. But communicate with gentleness and with respect. And when you do that, any accusations will not stick. That's the power of gentleness. It's the power to melt hearts, to transform lives, to restore and rebuild people rather than tearing them down. 
Now you may be thinking, well, you just don't understand. There are people in my life who just drive me crazy. The issue is not that I lack gentleness. The issue is them. If they would just change, I would be able to be a lot more gentle around them. But we need to recognize that in those difficult situations, what's happening when we lose our cool, when we fail to be gentle or kind, what's happening is those difficult situations are simply drawing out what's really inside of us. When circumstances are easy, it's easy for us to depend on our own strength to be gentle or to be kind. But when circumstances are difficult, then it really shows our true colors, what's really inside. This has been a very convicting lesson over and over and over and over for me as a parent because way too many times I find I'm being much less gentle than I should be, much less kind, much less patient. And I could say, okay, Micaiah and Tehillah need to shape up. They need to get their act in order. You know what? That would probably help some. But the bigger issue is that it highlights the fact that I have a lack of gentleness and a lack of patience inside of me. It needs to start in the heart. And that's why gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. That's something we cannot conjure up on our own, and it's not simply a personality trait. It's something the Holy Spirit comes and changes our heart from the inside out so that in those times when our children disobey us and drive us crazy, in those times when our boss rubs us the wrong way, when our spouse does something that we don't like, when, when friends betray us, or when the church lets us down, or anything like this, that rather than holding a grudge, rather than building that chip bigger and bigger on our shoulder, rather than coming out fighting, that the Holy Spirit living in and through us is able to help us respond with gentleness. I mean, still upholding the truth, not watering that down, but seeking restoration and grace, keeping that strength under control rather than letting it blow up. Now, this is hard. It's not, certainly not easy at all in this broken world where we are broken people as well. But remember Jesus' words. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When we find that rest for our souls as we yoke ourselves together with Jesus and as his Holy Spirit is transforming us from the inside out, then we will be increasingly transformed into men and women who extend gentleness to others. The gentleness that Jesus first gave to us, then we can share that with others and see the transforming effects in the lives of those around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your transforming grace and your gentleness that you show us. Lord, I know that some of us do need um, a little kick in the seat to get going, to, to, to deal with sin honestly. And I pray that in those times where we need conviction that you'll give it to us. But we thank you that in those times also that you are not trying to beat us down. You're not trying to condemn us, Lord, but you're trying to restore us. And I pray that each one of us, just like that woman at the well, will experience the new life, the eternal life, the living water that you alone offer. We thank you that you're a savior and not merely a judge that you do not condemn. Lord, we give you praise and we pray that you will empower us to extend that gentleness to those around us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.